Uh, I'm Andre Fillion, and I'm an architect and currently work in the University of Brighton, where uh, with Katrine uh, Bone, we've been teaching a program for master students. Um, and before that, I was involved quite a lot with the um, with research into low energy architecture buildings and how to make passive buildings, etc. And that's how we came to the interest in urban agriculture. Okay. Okay. okay so, and I'm Katrine, who uh, also teaches at the University of Brighton, but also holds a guest professorship at the Technical University in Berlin and in both cases trying to work around that subject, uh, food and the city. And uh, again with Andre, I uh, also share the work in Brunnenfilion Architects, which by now is very small and uh, doing mainly consultancy, installation type, feasibility work. And again, I mean, because that subject for us the continuous productive urban landscapes became so important. This is now mainly what we do, mm. and we like it. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, so the original CPUL book came out two thousand and four, two thousand and five, was it? The book came out in two thousand and five. Two thousand and five. So, so this is a this uh, the new book is a much broader kind of, uh, uh, I think it really sort of captures where urban agriculture has gone since then and, and how the concept has, uh, has become much, much more widespread. I wonder, how would you capture what's different between the first book and the second book? Well, I think the first book tried to introduce the, make the case for introducing urban agriculture into cities and make the case for thinking about uh, the, the necessity for a design strategy that could accommodate what we call productive landscapes into cities in a way that was coherent. So rather than having these spaces appear as slightly sort of random opportunities, you know, where people would utilize space that was available, but anywhere, that you would start to think how could they become more coherent and part of a network so that in the city you'd kind of read a separate infrastructure which we call the continuous productive urban landscape. So the first book was trying to make rational arguments for why urban agriculture would make sense, starting really from a quantifiable environmental uh, aspect, looking at greenhouse gas emissions, etc. But at the same time, trying to say there's a kind of qualitative benefit that these spaces could bring to cities, which would actually make cities better for people as environments for dwelling and desirable environments. And I, I mean, the thing that always kind of sums up maybe the difference, at least in attitude to the two books, was when we presented the proposal for sequels to the architectural press, who were the publishers of it. I remember the first thing the then commissioning editor said was, well, you know, what's the topic? And I said, urban agriculture. And the reply was, agriculture, but we do architecture. 
and <laughs> it was, you know, it was seen as really off beam. I mean, once what was interesting was once she realized how much interest there had been in Jack Smith's first book, which was called Food, Jobs and Cities, the first book really about urban agriculture, uh, she became interested in uh, publishing it. But it, I mean, the big difference is that the topic has moved from something which is completely on the fringe, and like in a UK context, seen as being interesting but eccentric, to something which is now commonly understood, you know, mm. as a space type. And, well, for example, in, in Berlin, the city has adopted an urban strategy that wants to accommodate productive landscapes. So the, the shift is remarkable, actually. And so now we're trying to talk about, in the new book, more how to implement these landscapes than make the argument for why, you know, there, there might be a good idea. And one of the things that, that is quite different, I think, is in the new book is that you, very, you argue very strongly that, um, that urban agriculture is, is a key economic strategy in a city. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear that hissing yeah, noise yeah, as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is that, that within a city, urban agriculture has the potential to be a really key part of the economic life of the city and creating jobs and, and the stuff that we really need at that scale. Can you say a bit more about that? What, what do you see as the potential of, of, of well-designed urban agricultural systems to contribute to urban economies? Well, I would say, again, uh, if you compare the second book to the first, in the first book, we had to do so much work to basically lay out a strategy that would make it possible to accommodate urban agriculture, that one of the big questions that always surrounded the subject, the question of economies, how could it be econo economically viable, at that point, we could only touch upon. Plus, at that time, there was hardly any experience how an, uh, an enterprise that produces food in the city would do that and be commercially viable. And nowadays, we can look at a few of these examples, and they do work, and they make a living. And we could state that only if enterprises manage to do this, then there is a real future for urban food growing. Yeah? And that doesn't mean that these, um, let's call them uh, commercially viable schemes, need to be commercially viable in a profit-orientated way. They can be social enterprises. But what is we noticed in the last 10 years, what is really crucial is that if we want to maintain the uh, assumption that urban agriculture can change the physical appearance of cities, then we need to provide concepts in which urban agriculture is also an economical factor. It can't stay community gardening. Yeah? That's maybe also interesting, uh, interesting to discuss in relation to the transition town concepts, how they would um, consider a transition not only 
in terms of energy use, energy consumption, lifestyles, but also transition in terms of economical survival, so to say, mm. given that we will not from today to tomorrow overthrow the system we are living in. Yeah? Mm. So for us, basically, finding these answers as to how people manage um, agriculture in a commercially viable sense, that gives us now, 10 years on, we think the right to say, yes, um, agriculture is still a good idea, because we can see that these viable versions are beginning to appear. But I think, yeah, I mean, the, the, the economic question, going to directly, it's still a challenge for urban agriculture. So, um, so, so the examples, like an exemplary example in the UK would be Growing Communities, which mm. is the organization based in North London, who've built up from a very, very small uh, starting point, uh, a business that is now expanding and is actually involved in training and has a larger scale market garden. Uh, which is a scale you need, we need to sort of get to, to make the urban agriculture viable. But the challenge is still, still, you know, the discrepancy between the incomes of people who are, of, of farmers growing food, which is imported, mm -hmm. and, you know, the cost of living here. So it, it's part of a much bigger economic problem. Mm. Um, so it's, so while we can see the emergence of projects that are beginning to be economically viable, they're still very hard work and the people operating them, you know, put in a lot of effort. Mm. Um, and a lot of them have, you know, multiple income strands, which again is interesting because it, it, the way that they achieve that goes back to some of the observations from, from the Seaples 1 book. So, for example, probably the best publicized rooftop farm in English-speaking world is one called Brooklyn Grange, which is in New York. Mm. Um, uh, and they operated commercially in, in relation to the amount of food which is grown, but they also rent the space out as a space for celebrations, you know, for weddings and parties and events. And that's an important part of their income at this stage. Mm. But it also confirms something we speculated about when we looked at the urban agriculture sites in Cuba, which are referred to in Sepals 1, the first book, um, talking about how those spaces had the potential to become kind of celebratory spaces. Um, and that's, that's what's happening now. So a lot of the spaces will have a dual uh, purpose, let's say, within the city. And then the ones that are really working purely on a commercial basis are tending to use hydroponics at the moment on rooftops. So they're lightweight, uh, they grow food very intensively but unconventionally. And I think the big interesting question is whether hydroponic systems actually can become converted to aquaponic systems which bring us closer to closed loop systems. Mm. So I, I think 
talking about how to make open agriculture economically viable, uh, if once it becomes seen as part of a mechanism <coughs> to introduce closed loop systems, cradle to cradle systems, uh, so you know, using urban waste or compost for new nutrition producing food. Uh, I think if that understanding uh, is made, then um, it can be the possibilities for making it sort of commercially viable by thinking of it in relation to also waste streams uh, becomes uh, more likely. Mm. And yeah, so I think cradle to cradle is very important as one of the factors for um, getting to the point of um, making these more straightforwardly economically viable. What, what's your sense of, um, in the, I suppose, for, in architecture now, the idea that when you build, you're building to maximize energy efficiency, you're building to incorporate the maximum levels of renewables is pretty kind of accepted and pretty mainstream now, I guess. The idea that architects should be incorporating uh, edible uh, landscaping, rooftop gardening, vertical growing into buildings, what needs to happen? Where is that within the architectural profession and what needs to happen for it to end up at the same level that renewable energy and energy efficiency is now? Um, well, you know, each of your questions is just incredibly complex. <laughs> so, and like previous one was already, one could say much more. This one is again because you can think that in so many directions. There is, because we're also both educators, there is this education aspect to it. How do you actually introduce new ways of teaching architecture into architecture schools? This is where we are involved. This is where a number of schools worldwide are basically starting to change the curriculum. You grow you grow a new generation of architects that then respond differently to um, clients' requests. Yeah? Uh, in Canada, Dryerson University, uh, where Joe Nasser and June Commissar are teaching, who you might know. Uh, June uh, Commissar, she actually already once followed up um, what students, architecture students are doing when they go into profession after having gone through their courses that are basically urban agriculture heavy. And you can see how these young architects are designing differently. Yeah? So that's um, one way of looking at this, this change. Yeah? Um, on another level, we must remember how young the subject still is of food mm. in the urban debate. Yeah? And there is the much-quoted um, Jeremy Kaufman entry paragraph to the uh, planning guidance document that the American Planning Association issued in 2007, which is like seven years ago, yeah? that whilst, as you also say, shelter and water and air, some of the sort of basic human needs are already on the agenda a long time, food has not been so far. Yeah, so food hasn't been um, considered much by architects at all at the mm -hmm. moment, by practicing architects. So 
Yeah, how to how to tackle this? Um, probably a lot of that will come via planning rather than from architectural impulse in the first place, unless you run competitions and the like. Yeah, and Brighton, where we are both mm. based, they um, again from a campaigning side of things, from a planning side of things, they have entered into their um, local planning requirements a small change on the website which um, checks when people submit planning applications for buildings for architecture not only whether they provide car parking and whether they provide enough I don't know uh, window opening surface or balcony but they also check whether this new development provides uh, uh, space for food growing. Yeah? So basically, unless you look at rather fantastic projects, yeah? in architecture, I think the change might happen in the best way via these um, legislations so that people understand that their local council is demanding something which they have an advantage if they sort of follow this demand. I think, yeah, so in, in Brighton, the, the, what Katrine's talking about also relates to what was developed uh, as a, a planning advisory note. And this is something that was developed in conjunction with Brighton and Hove Food Partnership and the local council. Um, and a planning advisory note is not... Uh, a condition for getting uh, planning permission, but if you undertake certain activities, the application will be looked at more favorably. Mm. And one of these, and so there is a planning advisory note about food growing uh, for development in Brighton, and that has had a noticeable impact on the number of applications that include food growing spaces within them. Now, um, the, I think the sort of then challenge that that raises is if you introduce food growing spaces, uh, we, we know how to design them and architects know how. Sorry, that's me. Just... Sorry. Uh, there is a reason is going to look after them, who's going to maintain them, uh, and who's responsible. Uh, and that, in some project, is still a, a challenge. Uh, but, but again, there are sort of models for how it could work. So, for example, uh, in Detroit, which has a lot of publicity about urban agriculture, um, uh, examples of um, businesses where they will set up an urban agriculture site, which becomes a sort of a communal use of the site. But then um, staff and employers will actually maintain it in conjunction with uh, some gardeners. So it becomes part of a program and a community kind of outreach program. I have an example mm. as well. Yeah. Now, also what I know, Notice the economic question, you have to look very closely at the different countries and different cities. 
Now, just when Andre mentioned Detroit, an example from Germany, or let's say more precise, is the following. Uh, in Germany, there is now, what also starts up in Berlin, is that the property market changes. And it changes in the way that we in the UK know already. A lot of private property, poorer parts of the population being pushed out of the city center, nobody being able to afford uh, housing. And a German answer to that problem is that people are uh, developing multi in an in a corporate sense. So you set five companies or eight or ten different partners, you are developing a housing scheme that has to live in it. And interestingly, these housing schemes often have a sort of deliberate a request by their own community to include food growing. I've just been visiting one which is at the the edge of the river Spree, where basically um, the housing that went up comes together with small internal food producing courtyards, comes with a whole range of low energy features. Yeah, mm -hmm. And we are basically um, using the fact that certain groups of population have certain lifestyle expectations to then find the right architect and develop these type of housing. Yeah? I also want to add another thing, if I may. <coughs> For the economic question where Andre spoke about the rooftop farms, uh, actually one other thing that in Germany is becoming very strong, or in Berlin, is uh, 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 basically comes from the US, which is community supported agriculture, where, you, I mean, you know about it, obviously, yeah, where sort of um, farms uh, collaborate with uh, uh, sort of city communities. I just want to mention that because this is another example of commercially viable agriculture that, um, yeah. you know, again follows slightly different principles. Yeah. So you, if you later cut this together, you might want to edit earlier okay. on. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've just, it might be good just to turn the cameras off because I think it uses a lot of our bandwidth and uh, okay. that broke up a couple of times. Um, so in, in the book, you write, you write about what you mentioned, the, the quote, the planned and designed introduction of what we call CEPOL into existing and emerging cities. Who are the best people to do that, do you think? Oh, I had a similar question just uh, last week in a um, in a sort of workshop that was held at Humboldt University in Berlin. Who actually are the people that are going to instigate that change? Yeah, and basically we discussed it the whole day. And interestingly, and we worked out that there are even if you look at literature or started research on the subject of food growing, there are maybe five different strands of um, who would start this. Yeah, And they range from the high-tech solution to the sort of governmentally imposed solution. Yeah, um, My conviction is that introducing food growing into cities is one of these um, um, processes and maybe one of the first processes in sort of recent 
and urban history that actually has to happen in conjunction with people on the ground. Yeah, it is it is one of these um, urban design tasks that you can only successfully run if you involve local population, if you involve those people who are supposed to buy and to eat the uh, produce that you are growing that are hopefully producing you the necessary uh, um, compost and soil that Andre referred to earlier when he said uh, cradle to cradle approaches. So what I find very interesting is that um, if uh, food growing becomes uh, integrated more heavily into cities that hopefully at the same time it is also an opportunity to involve um, local population more into space production, more into the sort of co-design processes. Yeah. So I know that's only half of the answer because it tells us who the actors are, but it doesn't tell us who's instructing these actors. Yeah. So, um, oh, why did you write down it's too long, Andre? Now, okay, you, you continue. No, no, we're just, we're just giving very long answers to all your questions. Is like. this correct? Is, are they too long, the no, answers? No, it's fine, it's fine. But, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, so, you know, we talk about in the, in the book the idea of the sequel city actions as a way of uh, implementing urban agriculture. And for the design part, yeah, we see it really as being a, top-down, bottom-up process. Um, and I think, yeah, as Katrin said, as in sort of co-design, there would still be architects and designers working, you know, on these spaces, as well as the people who are, you know, going to be using them and who are more expert who in the actual growing. Who might be also farmers. Yeah, yeah. farmers. Yeah. Um, so... Um, yeah, if it's about who's actually going to sort of develop the actual designs and physical uh, appearance of them, et cetera, et cetera, uh, I think there still is a role for, um, you know, design, trained designers, let's say. But it is yeah. also correct that you need that political will mm -hmm. in order to push certain decisions through. I mean, again, the Berlin example, one of the really active um, urban farming groups called Agrarbörse that are already managing several biggish sites in the city. Yeah, how they operate is they are going out to look for space. So they find sites in terms of sort of capacity um, uh, investigation. They find sites that they uh, feel are suitable and they have certain ideas of how big they have to be and how their infrastructure has to be um, uh, uh, positioned. And then they enter negotiations with the local council as to whether these sites on a longish lease can be used for food growing. So that's one model, actually. The other model is that the local council in Berlin, that was a very uh, uh, strong movement for a while, that the local council needs a different use concepts for larger city sites and tries to find these um, uh, productive, 
producers who are taking over sites. Yeah. So um, yeah. So the political will needs to be there. Mm. Otherwise, yeah, it will be very hard to uh, um, implement these uh, intensive food productive sites mm. in cities. And uh, is there, what's the evidence base in terms of what uh, living around urban agriculture does to people and to what extent and to what extent do you think as an extension of that do you think it's possible uh, to what extent the the current environmental crisis could be blamed on the fact that we don't have urban agriculture going on around us well um, the, the the evidence for the benefits of these spaces uh, that um, I want to talk about one benefit which relates to the idea of the urban quality of urban space yeah because there's a lot of work that documents the mental health benefits of access to open space the kind of social cohesion benefits of community food growing uh, the, the green thumb program in New York, which is supporting uh, the community gardens, uh, has amassed quite a lot of evidence for uh, social and health benefits, both physical and mental, yeah, of these um, spaces. But maybe the more contentious issue uh, for most people would be, you know, do we want food growing uh, in the city because they, they un, the spaces are untypical and I think one of the best examples of the attractiveness of these spaces actually comes from an unlikely project which is again a very well publicized one which is the High Line in New York yeah. which is uh, an abandoned railway line which does not have food growing. which doesn't have food on it but it has a landscape uh, which is uh, follows a planting principle, which is called the uh, perennial sort of movement developed by a Dutch landscape architect, where the whole idea is that the plants um, demonstrate the sort of seasonality, you know, in the process of the plant dying off and growing uh, and you know blossoming is all part of the, the kind of process of engaging with the landscape and the the high line is incredibly popular within new york and it's always kind of represented for us a a kind of a model of what a seapool space would be like now what's interesting is uh, the High Line, because it's so manicured and so uh, maintained, an ornamental garden, is not very well regarded amongst um, community gardeners in New York. And again, the reason for this is, is interesting because it, it shows both the desirability of these spaces and then maybe the kind of almost unintended consequences. So. The, 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 the High Line has the spatial qualities which are very similar to those you could get from a 
designed piece of urban agriculture. But it's so popular as a space that the property prices of all the buildings around it have gone up enormously. Mm. So that it's actually resulted in a, uh, you know, gentrification of the the area where it's built. And if you're asking, but um, Rob, you might you might be asking for the same phenomenon related to food growing. Are you? Yeah. Also if uh, next to food growing sites. I wanted to say and, and the, the, the most famous community garden in Berlin is called Prinzessinnengarten mm. and uh, apart from the fact that according to the founders it is providing an aesthetic that tourists like yeah, it also since it has gone up in 2010 yeah it has led to a complete redevelopment of that um, urban uh, square it is located at, which previously, also because it was so close to the former inner Berlin boundary, was uh, a lot of wasteland. Yeah? So in that particular example, the current um, uh, property development is, is absolutely to uh, relate to that um, uh, food growing project. And I have another example that I'm working at, which is in one of the depri deprived Berlin boroughs in Marzahn, sort of uh, East German high rise, where over the last three years, a group of students that I was leading has set up a community garden on an, in a former sort of brownfield site. And the council is now thinking of selling off that part of land, not to a developer who's going to build um, high-rise social housing as we have everywhere around that site, but to a developer who is looking at um, uh, one family housing that actually target a different client group, that target people who are slightly better off than those who are living there now. So again, people are aware that these uh, food growing sites um, are increasing the attractiveness of, you know, of, of, a, uh, uh, of a locality. Now, one might critically say to this that often the food growing sites, if we stay with the Berlin example, they actually happen on former brownfield sites. So it's no wonder that their quality is increasing anyway, mm. yeah. Mm. But I think it's definitely also to relate back to the uh, sort of aesthetic and and communal quality that these spaces are providing. That space Katrine's talking about, you can see on the last page of the book, there's a picture of the um, uh, field, which was set up very uh, simply in this big green area, but mm. then is bisected by a series of footpaths that start uh, meaning that the, the public, you know, interact with the space through by passing through it, mm. uh, even if they're not uh, literally growing food on it. Um, it's, uh, w one of the things that we looked at recently on the Transition Network website in the theme that we had a few months ago was around public health. Mm -hmm. And the extent to which actually the increasingly the sustainable development unit in the NHS and the Lancet and many sort of leading thinkers within the public health world are 
pretty much talking about the same stuff as transitions talking about and uh, yep. you know whether you know you, you could are arguing that you could look at transition and the community benefits and the so on and so on as being a public health strategy to what extent uh, uh do you think that the arguments for uh f- for this approach for urban agriculture uh should be really tying up with the agendas that are coming through the public health sphere Oh, I, I think absolutely. And, you know, there's the notion of the sort of health enabling cities um, and uh, activities like urban agriculture fit entirely, I think, into that strand of thinking, you know, and probably more so than activities like, you know, this, I remember a few years ago, there was this idea of constructing green gyms in mm. public parks and you'd see these kind of bars and things going up where people were meant to go and exercise between jogging and things um, and it was very much sort of somehow trying to construct some way of getting people to exercise whereas with the um, fruit growing it seems to have a double benefit. I mean, one, for people who actually engage in it, there's a physical activity, which is quite gentle, but, uh, you know, health enabling. Um, but there is some evidence which really, it would be interesting to test it much more rigorously. But from, for example, in Middlesbrough, where we did this project which was called DOT, Design of the Times, 2007, um, introducing uh, urban farming into Middlesbrough uh, at a series of different scales. But anyway, what um, a student found out who surveyed um, people in Middlesbrough, in fact, uh, Gillian Denny, who then, who's got a chapter in our book, but the chapter's about... Uh, a PhD she went on to do. Um, she she found that in Middlesbrough, people who started growing food, even if it was really token, you know, they'd grow a couple of tomatoes or something, actually their um, behavior started changing. And so they started purchasing food uh, seasonally um, and they started eating more fresh fruit and vegetables. And she, she compared people living in Cambridge to people living in Middlesbrough and found that in Cambridge where um, people already, you know, were very much sort of engaged with sort of health messages and were aware of environmental factors more so than in Middlesbrough, um, food growing didn't have such a big impact. But in a place like Middlesbrough, it had a huge kind of behavior change impact. And that's never been, as far as I'm aware, researched kind of more rigorously but so we think it probably is one of those activities that you know people are always seeking you know, behavior change sort of enabling activities um, which uh, you know which, which which links directly to um, to uh, health improvements it's also that this subject of food growing <coughs> Um, uh, it is an easy method to convey um, 
ecological education uh, overall. For example, a lot, whether there are commercial or communal food growing places, also engage in educational activities, whether they have sort of school groups there or whether there are particular sessions where people learn to cook or where they learn to to differentiate between different lettuces. So, um, so behavior change due to different food choices is one aspect in terms of health. And the other is also behavior change due to um, education that just helps you to um, make these right choices. It's probably another side of that question. Well, the very last question I had was, it seems like the world of architecture is often very driven by, by fashion. And what's, what's in this year is not in next year. And things come and go and what was very fashionable becomes no longer fashionable. Uh, how, how, what's the, is there a danger, do you think, that as this idea increasingly enters the kind of architectural world and the architectural mainstream, that it becomes something that's in favour for a few years and then isn't anymore. What can be done to design better for its longevity? Mm. Well, A, absolutely, there is a danger, yeah. And this danger um, is also one reason why many protagonists in the urban food growing movement, I guess like yourself, are also aware that their ideas have to make this jump into uh, policy yeah so in order that um it can be avoided if 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 these ideas go out of fashion that nothing is left behind yes yeah? so to um sustainably influence um, um planning policy is really important yeah um and is this is this happening? Well, I do think that is happening. If you look at, as we mentioned, we mentioned Brighton's uh, uh, policy decisions. New York has a um, food policy. Food policy councils are an interesting um, uh, organizational uh, uh, model to look at. Uh, campaigning groups that are influencing uh, food decisions of of cities like Sustain in London. And um, maybe I answer this also in this way, because architecture is fashionable and architecture follows, um, it follows fashion, but it also follows the client's requests. Yeah? So as long as um, the client requests these food productive spaces, then uh, architects, architects will engage with them. Yeah? So we're trying to, I mean, uh, actively pursue this um, next, let's say, strand to, to move the subject from, you know, one that's kind of interesting but still fairly marginal in, in terms of actual quantity of production. And what we've done is set up a, a research program uh, which has been funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council which is one of the UK's, you know, big research funders. And uh, it, I think it's the first time a research council has actually funded uh, a piece of work about 
designing for urban agriculture. And it's a network and it's got European partners in. It's going to start next month, run for 18 months. And it's called um, Urban Transformations from uh, Practice to Policy. And the whole kind of thesis is that actually grassroots organizations, people like you know the transition movement, uh, entrepreneurs, artists, those have been the people who've actually implemented a lot of um, urban agriculture projects on the ground. And at the moment, cities are actually looking for the evidence for why these spaces should be supported for the benefits. Um, and we're going to use this project to try and identify what would be the pathways to policy, pathways to developing policy um, to enable the longer term uh, support for productive urban landscapes. Um, so that's quite a major step actually in, in terms of getting the topic onto mm. the agenda of a, of a research council. In terms of designing also, yeah. design question. Uh, yeah. and, it's, and it's working with basically artists, designers, practitioners involved with urban food growing. Probably a good example would be um, the work of Deborah Solomon, which is in the, the new book and a project called Urbani Herfer in the Netherlands, where they're introducing edible landscapes into a number of uh, cities uh, in the Netherlands. But anyway, as an outcome of this work, we're hoping that these pathways will be defined more clearly. And we're going to have a final seminar in, uh, I think it's roughly July 2015 in Sheffield, which will invite members of the UK Sustainable Food Cities Network to attend. Um, and hopefully begin to then disseminate and also get feedback from them um, about how to develop these um, policy pathways. Because what's, what's been evident from a lot of work, a lot of projects internationally, is that it's not so much that you need cities to fund urban agriculture or to um, sponsor it. But what you do need is to get cities to actually kind of write it in as a legitimate land use into various planning documents. Um, and once that's in place, it really does help to enable uh, projects to uh, be initiated uh, and, and also sustained. So yeah, that, that's our sort of one big move. And then in terms of embedding it further, I mean, if you go back to this question about education, uh, Katrine's project that she's been running in Berlin in Matsan uh, with the residents, I mean, Katrine and the municipality and the local residents, that's Which just, already has that connection yeah, to the municipality. Yeah, yeah. And that's just been awarded a, what's it, a UNESCO? Well, it is a, a part of the, um, the, 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 the current UNESCO uh, decade, as you might know, is that decade for uh, environmental education. Mm -hmm. 
And um, and actually, this leads back to this question: How can one influence and and change behavior? So that project has been awarded um, uh, or has been recognized as a, a contribution to the UNESCO decade, yeah, which for us is a big achievement because basically it's a selective process, um, but it also shows that. Often, uh, these uh, often environmental or sustainable education, or for a long time, environmental and sustainable education also did not include food. So it was a lot about wildlife, biodiversity, air quality, water quality, and so on. Yeah, and uh, yes, and this sh shift is now happening also in that sphere that actually. Uh, food um, is recognized as, as one of these um, elements that um, are part of sort of a more coherent, sustainable uh, sort of agenda lifestyle. But I, so I, I mean, to go straight back to the question about how to get, uh, you know, whether architecture will adopt uh, productive landscapes as part of the future of architecture rather than as a sort of fashion statement. Um, it's, um, it's at that stage where we really need to get people to understand the significance of these spaces in terms of part of the city's ecological infrastructure and that they understood as being essential spaces. I mean, you always refer to it as kind of essential infrastructure within the city. Now, if that mental leap is made and we think there's enough evidence to support it, then these spaces will become embedded in the cities. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really the, the stage we're at, I think, but we're that much closer very good to that point now. Closing sentence. Yeah, yeah.